Take your Bibles and open them to Psalm, or chapter, or Psalm 96. It's not really a chapter. Let's look in this scripture of, or this passage of scripture. The psalmist, probably David here, is is writing a worship psalm that is intended to lead Israel to reflect on God, on His glory, and maybe we could even say His kingship. As we enter into this Thanksgiving time, I think it's, it's natural for us to, to say thank you for a lot of what God has done, to, to appreciate the goodness, the richness, the, um, even after a difficult year, the, the many blessings that God has touched us with. And maybe even by loss, we realize what we had before, and we're thankful for those things we weren't even thinking about being thankful for last year. We turn to Psalm 96, it's a call to praise, to worship. Although the word thanks or thanksgiving is not mentioned in this passage, it's a passage that promotes joyful, glorious worship and praise and gratitude. Let's begin reading in verse 1, I'll read all the way down through verse 13. Psalm 96 says this, O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all of the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples in his faithfulness. As we look in this passage, there is a clear call to worship if you didn't catch it. Look in verse 1 and 2. Sing. Sing, sing, tell, verse 3 now, declare. Those are all imperatives, commands. You do this. Sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, tell, declare, proclaim. We are to be doing worship all the time. In fact, I think in verse 2 it says day to day. In other words, this worship of God is not to be just the hallmark of a Sunday morning as we gather as an assembly. The worship and singing and praise and reflection and ascribing to God the goodness and the greatness of who he is is to be the breathing of the believer. As much as air is filling your lungs, it should expel praise and worship to our king. What motivates this praise? What strengthens the soul of God's people to worship him? If you were to go back to the year 1620, ironically, exactly 400 years ago, when these pilgrims were living, there were 102 that landed 
45 passed away in the 1620-21 winter. And that following year, they had Thanksgiving. Now, we have been filled this year with talk of death and death rates. We're not hitting 44%. Can you imagine our nation getting rocked by 42, 44% death rates and coming into this time of year and reflecting on God and saying, he is good. Thank you, Jesus. Clearly, circumstances cannot be the energy that drives worship. It cannot be what motivates and moves us because if it is circumstances, if it's, if it's the joy we experience from the, the temporary blessings of life, then our joy, our gladness, our thanksgiving will disappear in the drought moments of life. When life is like a desert, there will be no worship. And when life is good, worship will flow. And God would not be satisfied with worship. That's dependent on how happy circumstances make you. Come to this psalm, and while circumstances frame, I think the psalmist, again, uh, David seems to be the author here. There's a little bit of debate. The chronicler in, in um, chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles has almost this exact psalm recorded as David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. God has given victory over enemies. He's brought his dwelling place to Jerusalem as kind of this lighthouse among a dark world. And, and David, filled with joy, writes this psalm. That's probably the best way to understand the psalm. Like I said, there is debate on it because uh, the Hebrew is a little bit generic. It's just like, of David. Was it about David or written by David? It's a little bit unclear, but I I think that's probably the best framework for us to think of it. And he starts and he says, sing a new song. Unlike many people, he's not saying, sing the golden oldies. He's saying, God has done something new. God has done something fresh. And if, and if we're to take it and frame it in that idea of the Ark of the Covenant coming in, he's not talking about big picture plan of salvation. He's talking about a moment in his life when God's providence and care and work has brought rescue from real enemies and produced a real work of grace in his life. So we can always thank God for the work of Jesus Christ. And sometimes... God does something unique and special that causes us to reflect or appreciate anew who our God is. And that seems to be the, the, the background that this psalm leads us to. So I just want to, I want to break down the three verses. Verses 1 through 6 are the first verse. Verses 7 through 10 are the second verse. And the third verse is then 11 through 13. The first is relatively simple. And the first theme, I think, is that we worship with joy. Because our Lord is a glorious Savior. Maybe you could just take the uh out. Our Lord is glorious Savior. We worship joyfully because our Lord is glorious Savior. It would be unfair to simply ignore the fact that we are commanded to worship. It would also be wrong for us to miss this fact that we're commanded to worship with our voices. I can remember as a teenager coming to church and worshiping. And whatever you think of hymns, we sang a few this morning in different ways, but I can remember just dying because they're so boring and slow and sung poorly. And I can just remember it was like spiritual work to sing. It didn't, le- like it didn't feel good. It didn't, it, you didn't want to sing. You just wanted to sit there and be like, can we please sing it 
different? Can we sing a better song? But I, I think when I look at the command, we get this backwards if we approach worship that way. If, if the engine that drives your mouth to open is how much you enjoy the song, at the core of your worship is you. It is an act of obedience and rightness for you to worship the Lord with your mouth, with real statements of truth about who our God is. Now, he gives these commands. He says, sing a new song. And then he says, sing all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. We don't give blessing to the Lord, but we ascribe to him or describe his acts of goodness. And that's what it means to bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. And I think that's one of the core themes of that first verse is that we are to regularly be speaking about what God is doing to, to do good and to rescue his people. And despite the afflictions of this year, I do not think a single person in our congregation has passed away because of all that's going on. Have you thanked the Lord for that rescue? Most of you probably don't have any friends or family that have passed away. Have you thanked God for that rescue? If you drive the streets of Bakersfield and are alive today, you should be thanking God for that rescue. There is, there is salvation that God is giving on a, on a regular level in so many ways. You're just pausing day to day to just worship the Lord for these acts of kindness. He is a saving God. He has placed you and protected you and held you safe because he is good. And you should and are obligated and are commanded to say thank you. Verse 4, he calls the Lord great and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods for now notice where he walks with this. So our God is great. He is mighty is the picture there. And it leads to this cause. We praise him. We sing to him. We declare his works. We declare his salvation because his greatness is different. Notice what it's different from. He's greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all. Your Bible probably has a lowercase g, gods. And we come to verse 5. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. That phrase, worthless idols, is actually a play on the Hebrew. You might be familiar with the, the word Elohim. It speaks to God as God most high. He uses the word El Elim. It means empty or, or, or hollow, worthless. It's almost as though he compares God most high and the false gods of the idols of the world as empty nothings. We, we might use the word in our culture, they're a zero, right? Like, they're, they're a whole bunch of, of worthless, hollow, imagined, pretend gods. And on the other side is our God, most high, almighty. So come back to verse 5 with me. It's going to be verse 4. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods, because all the other gods are what? They're fake. They're hollow hope. They're worthless to put your trust in. They're nothings. They're cosmic zeros. Have you ever thought that one of the driving engines of missions and evangelism in the workplace, with your neighbors, with sending missionaries to the foreign fields, 
is the fact that they worship false gods. John Piper would say something like this. Missions exists because worship doesn't. They're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping hollow gods. They're worshiping things that cannot save. And we sit in our climate-controlled, chair-cushioned, plush auditoriums, and we worship God, and we say we have it right, and we may have it right because of Scripture, and we have no sympathy for the hopeless follower of hollow gods. And they worship and serve and trust these fake pretend gods, and our God who's enthroned in majesty and might, who we worship with hope and joy, anchors our souls. And we have no concern that God is being defied and blasphemed rather than worshipped by the one who hopes in a false God. Worship should drive us not simply to praise God. Come back with me to verse 2. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Where? Declares glory among, among the nations. Why? Because they worship hollow gods. They worship false gods. They worship idols, pretend gods. In fact, when we come to the end of verse 5, the point being he made the heavens is these, these false gods are often anchored to created elements. The sun, the stars, the moon. I mean, if we were to go to the, the Greek pantheon, they live on Mount Olympus. Well, who made Mount Olympus? God did. God made it all. They're posers and pretenders. They're not real gods, but you're hoping. Worship God. I would suggest by application, worship God publicly. Not just in the sphere of other believers, but among the nations, among the peoples, among your coworkers, among your disbelieving friends and neighbors. Give God credit for what he does. Because he does, in his works of providence, all things that are good. Now we move on. Not only do we worship God because he is glorious Savior, we worship him because he reigns with justice. Look in verse 7 with me. Excuse me. He says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Before we go further, that word ascribe has the idea of giving. Ascribe really is, is kind of disarming the word of its power. Because when we give words, we would maybe say ascribe, but, but if you come to that last phrase there, to bring an offering, he's pushing for more than just words. He's talking about giving the Lord what we have, whether it's words, but if you look into the second part of verse 7, we give the Lord glory and strength. How then are we to give the Lord glory and strength? That's where I think the ESV kind of misguides us a little bit. If I ascribe to him glory and strength, I would say, Lord, you're glorious. But if I am to give the Lord strength, then it's probably speaking to me of serving the Lord with my strength. That is, the things he's given to me, honor and and strength and power, these things are to be leveraged as sacrifices to him, not to be used for me. So so you, you are praised for maybe accomplishing something that God does through you, and you have this moment of choice to take credit, Or to give God glory. 
And this is one of the catastrophic failures in Israel frequently. Is that something would happen, the Lord would rescue, and then they would say, look what we have done. Do you remember the story of Gideon? Gideon is this uh, kind of mixed figure in the Old Testament. Mostly he's honored, but he's, he's this shy, unpretentious young man who's found hiding because there's enemies out. And the Lord raises him up and turns him into this military general who's raising an army. And when he raises an army, at first it, it numbers in tens of thousands. And the Lord whittles it down. It gets down to about 10,000. And the Lord says, there's still too many. The Lord is about ready to cut it down to 300. It says, because they will take credit for my work. And that's really the theme of that Gideon story is that the Lord is Savior, not we ourselves. It's a beautiful point in the story of Gideon. The reason he strips the army of all of its power is because he doesn't need one. He alone is enough. So when we come to verse 7, we should see the same type of theology pushing on us. When we ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, we are actually to be granting him the glory he deserves for acting, serving him with strength, giving him the honor that is due his name, that is, it is his right. So go back to the idea of nations. Every time someone gives credit to the natural world, or, for instance, in our country, to scientists, for creating a vaccine, or for a politician bringing about or accomplishing some purpose, they are stripping God of the glory due his name when they do so without any reference to our Savior and providential King. Do you know that God's hand is moving in this world? Okay, that was a real question. I want you to think about that for a second. Do you know, is there anything anything in this world moving in which it is doing so without God's permission or providence. Then why don't you give him credit for it? Why do you look at the life that we live as though he doesn't reign over everything? Now, I hope you don't, and I think if you don't, then it leads you to have to worship like, like pressure in your soul to say, God did this. This is a God thing. We jokingly at our house, uh, well, jokingly, it's, we're kind of serious too, but we joke about it. We call something God's bankings. So every once in a while, your child or someone is misbehaving or doing poorly. And it's like, there are natural consequences that come. You know, so kid is balancing on the couch that he's not supposed to be on like that. And you see him take a nosedive and get carpet burn on his face. He just don't, don't go too far with that injury. Just, he's not seriously hurt. And our home, well, someone will say, that yeah, was God's banking. It's like God in his providence reached down and said, no, son, you shouldn't do that, and gave a little God's banking. Have you, ever, have you ever thought that there's so much in this world that God is doing for which we just blindly ignore God has done something? kind of feel embarrassed that I've, I've never said that was, a, that was a God blessing. You know, sometimes kids do right and they receive rewards for it that are natural. 
Are you noticing that God is moving in all of the world? Are you giving him the glory due his name? Notice that the context of worship in verses 8 and 9, you were to bring an offering, were to come into his courts. It says, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. I don't, want to, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the splendor of holiness can be taken in two ways. Again, the Hebrew is unclear here. It can be that the, the worshiper has holy clothing. That is, you would come into God's presence making sure you, you yourself are cleansed and ready and appropriate to worship God. That your heart and, and your, your spiritual life are consistent with a God who should be engaged in a holy manner. Or it could mean that God is clothed in beautiful holiness. I think this passage actually probably takes that second idea. That is, majestic holiness. Holiness surrounds him. Think Isaiah chapter 6, where, where the, the Lord's holiness is like smoke filling the temple. I think here we have that same idea that we worship the Lord, we come before his holy majesty, and do what? Tremble. Verse 9, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. In fact, that word, worship the Lord, has the idea of bowing before the Lord. That is, we come before him with seriousness and humility. Trembling certainly promotes the idea that there should be a level of fear when we work in the presence of God in worship. We are in his presence, and especially when his gathered people come together there is a sense in which God is especially there among his people, gathering with us. Worship the Lord, bow before the Lord, tremble before him, all the earth. God is to be feared. There's this statement in Exodus 20 that I think um, helps us understand this. He says, don't be terrified, but fear, so that you don't sin. If I were to explain, maybe in, in... um, comparisons of, of explosives. There are some explosives you should just be always afraid of, like a nitroglycerin that can blow up randomly, especially when it has age. And then there's explosives, maybe like plastic explosives, that can be shaped and molded, but not until there's some trigger sets them off. Do they become deadly? God is not some random, angry God who will zap you for nothing. You do not need to be terrified of him that you'll be minding your own business, living peacefully and righteously before men. Boom, you're gone. He is, not, he is not to be someone that we are terrified of in that way, but he is a God of clear explanation in Scripture, clear and righteous and faithful behavior, and so we know where those lines are. We know when we cross over and into places of judgment and discipline or against him in anger. And so you don't need to be terrified of him, but you should be cautious of him. He is not tameable. He is not a God that we can can leverage and assume and presume upon. This is why Jesus Christ would not jump off the temple. He says, you will not test the Lord. Because God is to be feared. He is to be bowed to. He is to tremble. He is to cause us to tremble when we are in his presence. Because he is the great and glorious God. This leads the psalmist to the final part of of verse 2 here, where he says, Say among the nation, the Lord does what? He reigns. Do you think the world thinks this? 
Do you think this? It might be a more pressing question. When we consider what it means that the Lord reigns, we might consider something like the, the word providence. You think of those pilgrims, you think of those early years in our country, you might think of Providence, Rhode Island. It was named because of their theology of God's providence. Let me just define it for you. Augustus Strong says this, Providence is that continuous agency of God, which he makes all events of this physical and moral universe fulfill his original design with which he created it. Ephesians might say this, he works all things according to the counsel of his will, in verse 11. Psalm 115, 3 says this, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Speaking of the the unbeliever, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes that do not see, they have ears but do not hear, they have noses but do not smell, they have hands that do not feel, they have feet that do not walk, and they do not make sounds in their throats. And those who make them will become like them. Notice how it started out. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Daniel 9, 4. Daniel 9, 4. Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 46, remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there is no other, I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, And a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. Those are incredible passages of God's providence. Consider that last one. I will summon a bird of prey or a man to give counsel. The providence of God moves both people and birds of prey. Good counselors, we saw this with David and the insurrection of Absalom, counselors to lead to folly so that the foolish would fall. God is king. Proverbs 21.1, he turns the heart of the king wherever he wants. God governs. He reigns today. Some of you have experienced tragedy this last year. Some of you have experienced surprises. Some of you are just living in this culture and you're worn and weary and your soul is tired. God reigns. Should give you hope. God is not surprised by this year. I'm thankful God never gets tired, aren't you? I mean, he probably was ready to give up on 2020 if he, gave, if he was living in a world where he could get tired too. He never is exhausted. Some of you have met sorrows and spiritual despair this year. Some of you have met with spiritual joy. Your king has governed all of it. And the Bible says he does all these things for good to those who love him. If you don't love him, if you are not one of his people, you don't have a guarantee that his providence is doing you good. But you do have a guarantee that all things are in his providential hand. 
He reigns over all things, all birds, all people, all things. He has purposed it. He will do it. As you finish up this last stanza or this last line of, of the second stanza, yes, the world is established. It will never be moved. One of the commentators pointed out that some people have actually debated whether or not the world will stop turning and have gone to this verse to prove it will always turn. It is not at all his point. The point of this in verse 10 is that he reigns, leads into this idea that the world is established, and then you come to that last line of, the, of that stanza that says, he will judge. But the point is, is that he is king who rules, and he is going to rule as king in judgment. And in the middle you have this phrase, the world is established, it cannot ever be moved. The point is, is he securely governs the world, and no one will shake it from his kingship. He has established his reign over it, and nothing threatens him or his kingship, ever. As long as there is the world in existence, there will be seasons and years and God on the throne. He is on the throne governing now. Now notice how he governs it. He will judge peoples with what? Equity. Uprightness is really the point there. Uh, It's this idea that God governs by a standard. He governs by a rule. He is not arbitrary. He is is not a God that's that's flexed by, by emotions of sympathy or sorrow or anger. His standard cuts a line that will judge you and me. And it will not flex because of any type of emotion that you provoke in him. Now, you would expect that of any judge, right? Have you ever watched sports? I know this is true of me, that if I like the team, I always feel like the refs don't. Anyone else sympathize with that? I always feel like they have it out for my team, especially in close games. Maybe if you watched the Saints play the Rams in the playoffs a while ago, you thought that. These refs, someone paid them off. We are, we are used to thinking that, that officials, judges, governors have an agenda. That's why in our courts we pay such attention to the political motives that that move these men and women who make these decisions because we know that whether or not they say they're fair they're not and their political stance will affect their judgments because in fact even though we have a law of the land no judge perfectly ascribes and decides and adjudicates on the basis of it But Jesus will. Jesus will inflexibly and perfectly live and judge by the standard of right. I think Romans 3 would tell us that the standard is his own glorious character. This is why the condemnation of man is this. We are all falling short of the glory of God. That's the line of judgment. That should both be terrifying 
and peacegiving. It is terrifying because for everyone who falls short of that standard, everyone who does not meet that standard, when you read verse 10 here and you see that the Lord is king over all the earth and the earth will, will melt away before the Lord ever gives up his sovereignty over it. He has secured himself as king. He will never give someone else the throne. And he judges righteously. That should terrify anyone who's not living righteously. Why then does the psalmist have this deep hope and this call to the nations of come with me and worship the righteous king? Well, maybe on two levels we can, we can see what the psalmist is, is calling people to understand. Everyone should want righteous judgment from those in power and those in authority. I think that's, that's what we would expect of judges. We want judges to do that, especially if you're the victim. If you're the person who's being hurt, if you're the person who's, whose freedoms is being overridden, if you're the person who's being damaged by others, if you're being taken advantage of, if you have stuff stolen, you want to go to a judge and have him hear you with, with ears that are inclined to do right. And so as you look over a broken world, filled with the curse of sin, where people are hurting, they're asking for hope from a judge who sees what is right. And answers. Our Lord reigns and he knows what is right. There will not be one moment of suffering. There will not be one moment of deep soul hurt. For which God will not righteously reward his faithful people. When it's done for the cause of Christ. Not one. Some of you are embattled in hard positions in this life. And you are ready to give up. Knowing that our king has allowed you to suffer in this moment and calls you not to give up because rewards are coming. His judgment is right. Should encourage you, don't give up. Some of you would, would be embattled with a teen that you're hoping does right and they're doing wrong and it's hurting your soul and you're ready just to throw in the towel and say, I'm done. But if you knew that teen would turn the corner in a week, you'd be like, oh, I can go one more week. How much more if you know that at the end of this life, whether or not your teen ever turns the corner, our God comes and rewards so much richer than your child turning. There is a richer reward for you than the byproduct you hope to achieve by doing right. I want to break that down really simply because I feel like I didn't say that well. Some of you will be, you'll be in a marriage that is really challenging and hurting you because you hope that maybe your wife will, will change if you just stick with it. And so that hope drives you to be faithful, but you're at the point of quitting maybe. Okay, so what keeps you going is maybe the change, the hope of change. But if you can move that perseverance from the hope of change to the guarantee of reward, that reward is better than her change. This motive is weak. I mean, this is like a Walmart toy compared to eternal gold. But if this does motivate you, 
That's not a bad motivation because you can get the Walmart toy and heaven's gold. But if it's not this, this will not last. Maybe I should say a Happy Meal toy. Those barely survive the ride home. Every time I see them, I trash them. Heaven's reward is rich, stable, guaranteed, and of surpassing value. So if you're to the point in which your spiritual endurance is almost done, look to the king. He's always faithful to reward. Don't quit yet. Don't quit. Your king is coming, and he will reward those who are faithful. He judges with equity. He judges. That should give the believer hope because he has judged all of our sins in Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is the standard bearer, the line by which we are measured, and his glory is the glory with which if we do not match up to it, we will see eternal judgment, and if we match up to it, we will receive eternal reward, then when Christ takes our place, we match the standard. The judge will declare us righteous and good. And so it doesn't simply give the believer hope to endure that there's a righteous judge who sits on the throne, but it gives the, the believer absolute confidence that this life is good and to be answered by an eternal goodness because we pass the judgment that is coming. The psalm ends with this final stanza. And boy, it's got to remind you of some passages of Scripture. So let's read it together. And if your heart and mind didn't go to some place in Scripture, I'll remind you in just a moment. It says, let the heavens be glad. Think heavens as in sky. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. What fills the sea? You guys are all thinking of a dolphin roaring right now, aren't you? You're thinking of fish shouting for joy because the Lord reigns as king. Let the field exult and everything in it. And then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy. Trees singing for joy. But here's the point. All of creation owes its creator, the king, worship. Because he is glorious. He is good. He has splendor and majesty and strength. If you go back to verses 5 and 6. This king that we worship is the true, glorious creator. And everything else that claims to be God is just a pretender. So worship him. How compelling is our king? If you were to stand in our presence, we would drop to our knees. If you were to just pull back the veil hiding his glory, we'd be blinded and obliterated. He is glorious. We come to the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Luke tells us that his disciples are worshiping him. It brings a little frustration to the Pharisees because they want to kill him. And he's being exalted. Listen to what scripture says in Luke 19, 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. To praise God with a loud voice that all the mighty were, about all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. How compelling must our Creator be that rocks would worship Him if we don't? And the psalmist calls all of creation to look at our Creator and worship, to praise, to rest, to hope, to endure, because He is glorious. He is King. And this final point, He comes to righteously set the world right. All of nature singing, the skies sing, the sea and all of the animals in the sea sing, the field, the grass, the rocks, they sing for joy, the trees shout for joy. And then in verse 13, here's the cause, the Lord, he comes. He comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples in his faithfulness. We miss maybe the significance of faithfulness. Having just gone through a political season and being told multiple times on Facebook that everybody's lying, I'm thankful for the scripture that cuts straight through and says our God cannot lie. He is faithful. He is reliable. He is trustworthy in all that he says. His judgments are true. There is not one statement in the word of God that will fall false as the Lord unveils his program throughout history. There is not one promise to you that when you stand at the end of your days that you will look back whereby you can say, God, you fell short of your promise. I can hardly keep a week of promises. Meetings and appointments and plans to be home and leave and be attending something. And man, I forget stuff. I show up late. Something happens in my home and I can't make it. I can't keep my promises for three days. How much more so is it that the king of creation, who's made promises throughout all of human history, will not let one single promise to one single person fall to the ground unfulfilled, broken, or twisted? He's faithful. You can trust him. He makes his measurements and decisions correctly because he is the true and the righteous and the faithful. And for this reason, trees sing. Dolphins shout. And all of creation worships. So what are we to do with a passage like this? Well, let me just remind you, I, th- I think there is, in some sense, a movement of time here. Our Lord has in the past saved, he is in the present reigning, and he will in the future come and judge. There's an element in which his movements, he is savior, he is king, he is judge, are part of the rhythm of the song as well. But I want you to see the bigness of this picture of worship. It's a call for the believer to publicize among the nations, among the unbeliever, among the coasts, even in nature itself, how good and glorious our God is. Maybe you, along with me, can feel the disappointment of looking at times where we were embarrassed about God or our Christianity. Have you ever had one of those moments where you've kind of pulled back or maybe you haven't pressed out to speak of your God and how good he is. 
Sometimes it can be hard in a year filled with so much tragedy and memes about tragedy. Where 2020 is going to go down as this cosmically horrible year. And it really wasn't that bad, historically speaking. And never once did God fall off the throne and forget to do good things to his people. Not once. There's not one, there's not one thread of sorrow woven in the fabric of your life for which your king says, oops. There has not been one moment where he has taken his eye off you and forgotten to be your good king. There has not been one element of grace in your life that was not deliberately placed there by our king. And for just like a week in our world's history, our world kind of gets it half right and all wrong. The world says this is Thanksgiving. And we know who to give thanks to. And so coming back to verse 2, we give thanks, we praise, and we worship every day. We acknowledge God, and we praise him, and we do so among the nations, among the peoples, so that we might call them with us to praise and worship our glorious king. He reigns and is king. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the hope that we can have that you are king. It strengthens our endurance. It pushes away the depression that that threatens to overcome us because we have taken our eyes off of you. It reminds us that we are not in control, and that is actually a good thing. So, Father, we come before you and worship you because you are clothed in glorious, majestic holiness. Splendor and majesty stand before you. Strength and beauty are in your presence. They stand as attendants at your side, showing us how glorious you are. God, we thank you that there has never been a moment where this, this world was out of control, over which you did not manage it well. There has never been a moment in which we took control from you or the chaos of this sin-cursed world stripped away your sovereignty. So we say thank you for securing this world under your kingship. And Father, we look forward to the day of judgment because it is a day in which rewards will be given to the faithful. Is it a day in which treasures will be bestowed on those who were living for you? And Father, I pray and I long for the day where this church will stand overwhelmed by the rewards received because we've been faithful to advance the gospel to the unreached peoples of this world. We have called them to worship our God with us because he is the God and all other gods are empty, worthless idols, vain hopes. Father, I pray that we would call our children to look to the true God, the King of creation. Lord, even now, move our hearts to come gladly before you, humbly before you, trembling before you because you are king and we worship you. Amen.